Hi, we're here from Curiosity.com to help you get smarter in just a few minutes. I'm Cody Goff. And I'm Ashley Hamer. Today, you learn why it might actually be a good thing that doctors work such long hours. You'll also learn about fruit fly research with Stephanie Moore, a lecturer on genetics at Harvard Medical School, in the first edition of our four-part Fruit Fly Friday miniseries. Let's satisfy some curiosity. There's a good reason why doctors have very long shifts. And when I say long shifts, I am not kidding. On average, U.S. doctors work almost 60 hours a week. And a lot of the time, younger residents work up to 80 hours and have to deal with grueling 24-hour shifts. We wanted to cover the research behind this today because at first glance, those long hours might seem like a disaster waiting to happen. I mean, delivering medical care is stressful, highly demanding work, and doing it on little sleep seems like it would result in people getting hurt. But there is a convincing reason why doctors prefer to keep working instead of handing their patients off to another doctor. And that reason is that it can save lives. This is a relief to me because when I moved to Chicago, I lived with my good friend Blake, and he was in medical school the first three years we lived together. And yeah, his hours brutal. I've never understood why they did this, and I'm so happy to know now. Well, yeah, clearly saving lives is a pretty good reason. And this is backed up by a lot of research that has shown that even when training shifts and weekly scheduled hours for doctors are cut back, there haven't been significant changes in the number of lives saved. So what gives? One of the major reasons for this is the risk that goes along with changing a patient's doctor. This routine is known in the medical profession as a patient handoff. Handoffs require a lot of clear communication on every detail about a patient's condition, prognosis, and treatment. When you multiply this by the number of patients, usually under a doctor's care, it's pretty much guaranteed the details will be lost without a robust and organized method in place for communicating them. Up to 80% of serious medical errors can trace their origin to miscommunication during patient handoffs. That's why sleep-deprived doctors who have first-hand experience working with a particular patient are less likely to make serious errors than doctors who are wide awake but who are never told about a patient's allergy or another complicating factor. I mean, you know when you show up at the hospital and the doctor asks you, okay, what have you been feeling? What are the symptoms? And you talk to them for like 20 minutes about something. Well, yeah, I mean, that doctor may not be able to repeat that 20 minutes of conversation for 200 patients to the next doctor. It makes sense. These days, hospitals typically enforce strict patient handoff procedures, and they implement their own fatigue mitigation strategies. That can actually include scheduling planned naps, strategically using caffeine, and keeping staff involved when designing work schedules. The future should be brighter, since trials are still underway to find the perfect balance for work hours, shift policies, and sleep policies. But for now, it's worth remembering that there is at least one good reason why doctors work such long hours. Today's episode is paid for by NHTSA. It can be a little frustrating, especially if you're in a hurry or running late, to find yourself at a railway crossing waiting for a train. And if the signals are going and the train's not even there yet, you can feel a bit tempted to try and sneak across the tracks. Well, don't. Ever. Trains are often going a lot faster than you expect them to be. And they can't stop. Even if the engineer hits the brakes right away, it can take a train over a mile to stop. Yeah, and by that time, what used to be your car is now just a crushed hunk of metal. And what used to be you, well, it's better not to think about that. The point is, you can't know how quickly the train will arrive. The train can't stop even if it sees you. The result is disaster. If the signals are on, the train is on its way. And you just need to remember one thing. Stop. Trains can't. 
Did you know that scientists do a ton of research using fruit flies? I clearly didn't. <laughs> this was such a fun interaction we had because we were looking for people to interview and you're like, oh, well, there's just some book about fruit flies. Who cares about that? And I was like, fruit flies are amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Everything's done in fruit flies. They're like one of the most important animals to research. I definitely learned a lot from this guest and now I'm excited about fruit flies too. Right. So the author of this book we were talking about is Stephanie Moore. She's a lecturer on genetics at Harvard Medical School and the author of the book, First in Fly, Drosophila Research and Biological Discovery. And she's joining us for a four-part series we're calling Fruit Fly Friday. For our first installment today, here's what she told us about how and why fruit flies are such a big deal in the research world and what scientists are actually looking at. The fruit fly has been the subject of research for more than 100 years. And from that work, we've learned all kinds of things about uh, this tiny animal. And what's been really exciting in the post-genomic era when we have genome sequence is to learn that what we have now understand about the fly and its genes applies very much uh, to what we can then figure out about humans and, and its genes. So for human genes, there are about about 50% of them have an equivalent gene in the fly. Um, and so we can use this simple system to do studies, learn what those genes do, and then try to apply that to new studies in humans um, that might be health and human disease related, for example. So why flies? Why not, you know, everyone hears about lab rats. Why aren't we doing this on mice and monkeys? Well, one of the answers is that we are doing similar studies on mice and, and monkeys. Um, but there's some very simple, straightforward reasons um, to, to use a fruit fly as an additional tool uh, in the biologist's toolbox for study. And one of the most uh, obvious is that they reproduce quickly and in big numbers. So, um, you know, genetics and other kinds of studies rely on the power of big numbers uh, to have certain in, in the outcomes that we observe. And fruit flies can reproduce. Uh, they can go from being an egg to laying an egg themselves in just about 10 days in warm summer day type conditions. And they can lay hundreds of eggs. A single female can lay hundreds of eggs in her lifetime. So we can collect a large number of them. And they're also very easy and cheap to grow in the labs. So they live in labs on a, a diet of uh, basically cornmeal and, and yeast and a little bit of sugar thrown in there. Um, and that's that would not be true for many other organisms. So that lets them be, you know, grown in a lab, grown cheaply, grown in big numbers. And yet they are complex enough that we can study um, some surprising uh, things about biology using this system. Sure, but they're so small, right? Like how? Well, everything gets bigger when you look under a microscope. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. That's true. What what goes into studying even the genes or the behavior or all the things that you study in a fruit fly? Like how, how does that happen in the lab? Like what are the steps that are required to actually look at a, a fruit fly? Well, in the lab, to look at a, a living fruit fly, we anesthetize them um, by exposing them to carbon dioxide. So you know, crack open a soda and the gas that comes out, we're basically exposing them to that gas. It deprives them of uh, oxygen. And so they just, they, they're they essentially asleep. That lets us then put them under a microscope, a pretty low power kind of school grade mo microscope is all you need to see uh, the difference between males and females, to look at various features that we use as genetic hints of what's going on. And then in terms of, you know, sophisticated cell biology, molecular biology techniques, we can squish them up, grind them up, extract DNA and do all kinds of studies based on that material that we extract from the flies. Again, Stephanie Moore is a lecturer on genetics at Harvard Medical School and the author of the book First in Fly, Drosophila Research and Biological Discovery. 
You can find links to the book and more in today's show notes. And next Friday, she'll be back with more on fruit fly research. We've got a fun story to wrap up today's episode, but first, we want to tell you what you can learn about all weekend on Curiosity.com. This weekend, you'll learn about why you're made almost entirely of empty space, whether you can learn perfect pitch, things you're probably cleaning too often, why Easter is called Easter, and more. And if there's something else you're curious about, then find our contact info on our website, curiositydaily.com. We might answer your question on a future episode. You can also search for past episodes and listen to more than 300 episodes on our dedicated podcast website. Know what else you can do there? Leave comments. And I have to read this one from last Wednesday's episode. This was so cool. This was a reply to last week's episode with Quantum Computing 101. We also talked about six magic words that are the key to diffusing conflict. So this comment is from Anne, and she writes, So I listened to this episode this morning while getting ready for work, and the episode talked about how to resolve conflict by saying, The story I'm making up is. And I thought to myself, that's just silly. I didn't quite understand it at the time out of context. But that morning at work, myself, a manager and the owner were having a disciplinary meeting with an employee. After being contradicted at every sentence I seemed to say because the employee was sure I was wrong, I said the magic words. And it actually shut down the argument from her side because she realized how easy it was to attempt to convey one action while clearly demonstrating another and how those things are certainly misunderstood. Long story short, thanks so much for the great advice. And my boss complimented my situation diffusing skills. Level up. That is one of the best comments ever. It really is. Thank you so much for taking the time to leave that comment. And and you can always comment on our episodes at curiositydaily.com. The story I'm making up is that you're going to join us again Sunday and learn something new in just a few minutes. In the meantime, have a great weekend. I'm Cody Goff. And I'm Ashley Hamer. Stay curious. On the Westwood One Podcast Network. 